amen and amen. All right, you may be seated. Let me have you open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to pick up from the theme that we had last week, how to fight a spiritual battle, how to fight spiritual wars. And uh, we're going to continue on with that. And, And Paul doesn't necessarily talk anymore about the spiritual battle on how he said that the weapons that we fight with on our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And Paul said in verse 5 of of chapter 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedient when your obedience is complete. Paul recognized that there was this spiritual warfare, a spiritual attack. There was this, this force that was being uh, infiltrated within the church. And that that spiritual attack that was taking place are these strongholds, are these opinions, are these thoughts, are, are and all this disobedience that was happening within the church. And Paul knew that this spiritual warfare was not in, in a, a, a hand-to-hand combat. Much of it was this debate of the words that were being used. Words that were being used within the church, kind of what is going on within our church today. There are certain words that if I were just to, just to say them right now, it would, some of you would say, yeah, and some of you would say, what is wrong with you? And it's just, you know, some of them are political words. Some of them are politically incorrect. Some of them are politically correct. And there are some just some words that regardless of what you say, it's going to cause all kinds of confusion. And this is what was going on in Paul's time at the church. The church was being dealt with all kinds of influences from the world. Corinth was a, a very uh, sinful city. As a matter of fact, people that went to Corinth and lived the lifestyle in Corinth and all the debauchery and things that went on in Corinth, they, they'd see these people's lives and they would say, you have been Corinthianized. As a matter of fact, the word Corinthianized became to be a, a, a description of a person. Oh yeah, this guy's it's kind of like you know, he's from Vegas or they're from San Francisco and there's this connotation of sinfulness and it was a prideful sinfulness that some of these people had living in Corinth. And so this was infiltrating the church. We found out in 1 Corinthians that there was divisions among them because they couldn't get together. They were politically Contrary to one another, some people liked one political leader and other people liked the different political leader. Some liked the, the leadership of the church. Some liked Paul, some liked Apollos, some liked Cephas. And, and so there was all these different groups. There were people that were suing each other. They, they were misusing and abusing the spiritual gifts. The Lord's table was being abused. People were getting drunk. Sexual immorality within the church. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And, and now Paul is talking to the people. He's talking to those that are causing this dissension. And when he starts to talk about this spiritual warfare, he says, I I want you to know that that I have thought long and hard through this. For for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. And these people were accusing Paul of walking by the flesh. All he does is he wants to gain for himself. He wants to be popular and he wants people to to come to his side. and, And he's doing this to gain your money, your trust. He wants to lord it over you. He wants you to obey him. And these people that were were causing all this dissension, well, of course, it was coming from them themselves. It wasn't actually Paul that they were accusing him of doing this. It, It just so happened that those that were accusing Paul were the ones that were actually doing the abuse. 
And Paul points that out. He says, you know, our weapons are not of the flesh, and we destroy arguments and lofty opinions. And so we talked about spiritual warfare as being this battle of the mind, this battle of opinions, of ideologies. And beloved, you can get caught up in ideologies in today's current climate, in our political climate, especially now as the elections seem to come to a point. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. And regardless of what your opinion is, somebody is right there with an opposite and opposing opinion, whatever it is. Beloved, I entreat you, do not get caught up in those opinions. Don't get caught up in those political debates. Don't get caught up in all that ugliness because all it is is just a spiritual warfare. It takes a stronghold on your mind and it doesn't let go. You end up going home and doing all this research and trying to find a way to convince or really not convince somebody, but how to beat them up with words that you know, because you know you're not going to convince them, but it don't matter. I want to show them the wrong and I want to show them how right I am. And Paul is saying, stop that. Because that is causing division within the church. Now, Paul was talking about a genuine division within the church. He was talking about how these Judaizers or these supposedly apostles, which he called false apostles. Yeah. And, and these people, they were, they were stirring up dissension within the church. Yeah. And so when we go to verse 7 and the rest of the chapter, keep that in mind. Because this is what Paul is dealing with. This is who he's talking to. This is what he's trying to pinpoint to the people in Corinth. And we've already looked at how Paul says, you want a recommendation letter from me? You are my recommendation. Look at your lives, what they used to be like and what you are now. And so Paul is kind of bringing this to fruition. He's bringing it to a close in this last part of this chapter. And he says in verse 7, and I'm going to read it all the way through. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that we say by letter, when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture. And it is so detrimental to the church. When those that rise up and talk against the pastor or the leadership and those that have their own ideas of what church should be or how the Bible should be interpreted. Lord, the Bible is not left up to interpretation. It says what it says. 
And Father, we have to look at it diligently. We have to comb through the word and see your intent in the whole process of this chapter. In, in not taking it out of context and making it say what I want it to say. And so, Father, I know that I personally have been guilty of that way in the past. And, Father, I'm trying to be as uh, with integrity to your word, as, as direct as possible, Father, and just seeing what it is that you have for us. So help us to see the, the division that was being caused, what Paul did, and how he prepared for battle in this portion. Help us to do the same, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone says... Paul commanded Corinth to look at what was obvious. He said, consider the facts and evidence that is right in front of you. Consider what's been going on. If you have any type of concern, look at what a true apostle really looks like. This is what an apostle looks like. Now, Paul wasn't the one that liked to toot his own horn, and we'll see here in just a little bit. But he had to somehow go up against what everybody was talking about. Now, you have to remember... Corinth, I mean, this is, this is a, a distance. It's not like today he can just send a text or a tweet or an email and get it done there. There were things that were happening in Corinth. It took weeks, if not months, to get to Paul. Paul had to take weeks, if not months, to write the letter, and then weeks and months to get back to, to Corinth. So there's this huge transition of time that things are, are getting lost in the translation, and Paul is having to do the best he can with what he has. He used modern technology. He used modern technology. The, the technology that Jesus Christ used was, of course, oratory. He, it was a spoken word and always has been. Things have been handed down by oral tradition. And so it was very important to listen to what the person was saying and to repeat it as best and as closely as possible. And so as time went on and, and uh, well, papyrus became more available and, and, and Paul started to write these things down and, and he made it a point to make sure that you, the people, were receiving the word of God as accurately and as closely as possible. One of the things that many people don't realize is that, yes, we have this translation and we have that translation and you have a trans, and they're all different translations. There are over 13,000 words in Greek in the New Testament. Okay, and any one of our translations, we have to use about anywhere from 20 to maybe 24,000 words to describe what they're trying to say. And so we use, because every word has a, a different uh, nuance and depending on how it's being used and how it's been used somewhere else. So you really don't have all the information. We have the best that we can get with the word that we have. This is why I encourage you to try to get a word, a Bible that is word for word, not thought for thought. It's good to have a thought for thought Bible. And what I mean by thought for thought, that those are the words like uh, the New Living Translation, uh, probably the Good News Translation, uh, the message. It's not a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. Uh, but, but what happens is it gives you the thought of what the the intent, intention was of the author. So say the scholars. And then there are those that scholars, and, and not just one person, but many people, they get together and they take this word and they parse it and they look at it. What was its intentional root and everything else that goes before and after it. And then they try to get the best word that can describe. And it's word for word. And sometimes it's a little harsh, especially in the King James and the English standard. But the point is, is that it's important to know what the in original intent was. And when you are, are learning and when you are reading, if you can at least look a little bit on the, the words of what they say, because Paul is trying to get to the bare bones as best as he can, as accurately as he can, using words that mean something. Yeah. 
They're not just words that he made up or words that he just thought, well, this sounds good. It rhymes. Some words did rhyme. But see, what the Holy Spirit does and continues to do is he continues to preserve his word. And so when I come to you and I share with you, look, this is what this word means in Greek. And this is how it's stated. And this is what, what I'm not trying to show you my intelligence, which is not much. Because, but what I'm trying to do is help you to understand that these words have meaning. And Paul is discussing this with the people in Corinth. He says, look, what is before you, he says. And number one, he says, number one, in order to prepare for this spiritual battle, in order to prepare for this warfare, in order to prepare, the first thing I need to do is I need to have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. I need to have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. My relationship to Jesus needs to be clear, needs to be within my life, needs to be evident. And you know how you know it's evident? You don't even have to say anything. And people get offended because you're a Christian. You don't even have to proclaim that you're a Christian. You don't even have to, you know, be over people and telling them, you know, what the Word of God says. They should be able to read that through you and see that in you. And they recognize that you have been with Jesus. When the disciples were proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Pharisees and the rulers, they looked at these men and they, they didn't even realize what they had said. But they noticed that these guys were with Jesus. There was something evident about that life. In getting ready for spiritual warfare, you need to have that ability to be able to do so. Because if not, if you're not connected with Jesus Christ, then everything else is going to fall apart. Everything seems to be more about me than it is about them. As a matter of fact, this is why Paul was trying to talk about these guys. Jesus himself even said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. How do you know if a person has been with Jesus or not? Well, number one, his fruit is good. And number two, and, and, and the church is filled with false teachers that are filled with bad fruit. All you, all you have to do is open up the newspaper or whatever news source that you have, and you'll start to read of all the things that some pastors have been doing and done, and, and just the, the, the bodies that have been, not literal bodies, but spiritual bodies that, that have been broken because of leadership inabilities. In order to combat that, beloved, we need an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. Number two, I need to have an impact on others. Paul says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. If I have to pull rank and say, look, this is the authority the, the, the Lord has given me. As a pastor, I need to do what I can to build you up. And sometimes, as Paul is saying, the words are a little heavy and they, they might hurt, but they need to hurt to make the change happen in your life, to recognize there is sin in your life, in my life. And unlike the abusive, destructive, false apostles, they were using all these words to, to divide. They were trying to take, take Paul out of the picture. They were destroying the church. They were edifying themselves. They were strengthening themselves. They were trying to ingratiate themselves. And, and Paul had preached the gospel with power. And a lot of people had seen the, that power just preached through him. And his ministry as a true apostle is, is undeniably stated. You can see the evidence. There's a lot of spiritual growth going on within, uh, within what he had done and, and also within the church. 
As a matter of fact, Paul even said to the people in Ephesus, uh, chapter 4, he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of church, not destroying it. And it's unfortunate that some people want to take their own ministry and build it up for themselves. I want to build a ministry for me, for myself. And people are coming to hear the pastor. They come to hear because he has got the words. He has got the charisma. He has got all those things. And, and a lot of people, what happens is once the pastor leaves, then, well, he's, they're no longer there. Amen. See, false teachers, what they do invariably bring discord, disunity, destruction, even death to the church. Yeah. Their confusing, divisive influence yeah. is at a cross purpose with what the head of the, of the church is, Jesus Christ. Their purpose is for themselves only. The church needs to have Jesus Christ as the head, not the pastor. Number three, in order to get ready for this spiritual battle and preparing for this war, is I have to have compassion for people. I have to have compassion for people. We talked about this last week. When we talked about having compassion, being nurturing, you know, how does, how does going into battle, how does that relate with compassion? How, how, do, how is it that I thought I wanted to, to, to kill the guy? I thought I wanted to overrule and destroy his city in battles. I thought I'm going in and, and trying to cut people up. And Paul says, I, don't, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm sharing some heavy stuff, but I don't want to scare you. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I, I understand I was there at one time. See, false teachers tend to be self-centered, grasping, and abusive. And, uh, and people usually mean nothing to them except what they can get out of them for themselves. They're often overbearing, self-absorbed, and, and callous to the needs of others. They, they think about people as objects, as tools. How can I use them to further what we're trying to do? You know, because ultimately, it's the kingdom of God. We're trying to grow a church. And, you know, if you can help, great. If not, get out of the way because uh, there's a lot of people in line that want to take your place. And Paul says, that's not what I'm doing. I, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, he says. He was not trying to frighten them into obedience. His goal was to bring them to repentance. That's the goal of any pastor, of any church leader, is to bring people to repentance. There's got to be a, a, a desire to just say, God, I'm sorry. I, I, I offended a holy God. When, when, when I understand that I offend a holy God, I need to repent. And when I see that you are offending a holy God, I need to push you to not to obey me, but to understand that there needs to be repentance within your life. So the goal is to bring repentance so, so they would experience the, the blessings that accompany salvation. And, and there is so much fear out there right now that sometimes, I, I, and I've said this, look, why are you so afraid? Well, it's because of this. Yeah, but why are you so afraid? Don't let fear so grab you. God didn't give you a spirit of fear and timidity, but a love, a power, and a sound mind. You have the ability to withstand anything. Don't let this, whatever's going on right now, political system, this, this campaign of fear and fear-mongering, get a grip on you. I mean, be careful, please. Don't go out there and be careless. You know, if you see a bunch of people doing something, protesting or whatever, go the other way. God's going to protect you and take care of you, but not if you go throw yourself in the middle of the freeway. <laughs> you know, well, God said he'd protect me. I'm going to walk right in the middle of the freeway, kaplunk. 
You get to heaven and say, God, I thought you said you were going to protect me. I did. I gave you common sense. You didn't want to use it. Amen. Well, welcome home. <laughs> see, see, Paul's purpose has always been, as he says in Philippians, for God is my witness, how I yearn for all with affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had this love, this desire that says, you know, you got to repent. You got to change. There needs to be change. You can't say you're a Christian and live like the world. You can't just continue to live as you feel like it. Well, God understands. He knows. He, he, he knows that I'm a work in, in, in progress. And, and Paul's affection had always been on the top of his list. Number four, I, I, in order to be ready for the spiritual battle, I need to depend on God's inspired word. Depend on his word. And let me explain this a little bit. I need to depend on God's word, not my words, not my eloquence, not my charm, my charisma, not everything that I have. But on what God has given me, I need to use that and be a good steward of that, depending on his word. It's interesting because Paul goes on and he's talking to the church. But all of a sudden, now he starts pointing out the people. For they say, he says, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. You know, they said, you know, he's, he, he just seems to be a tough guy when he's not here. Oh, he'll text you all kinds of stuff. and he'll. But the moment he shows up, eh, he won't say nothing. And Paul says... <laughs> You wait and see. You wait and see. But, you know, and, and Paul is saying, you know, I, I, I have to be because I don't know when this letter is going to get there. I don't know what's happened since I got the information. I don't know when I'm going to be able to see you guys. You got to repent. And they were saying, well, look at these letters. Look at him. I mean, he's not even here to defend himself or to say what he, but he wants us to change. Come on, let's go party is basically what was going on. You know, in, in the false apostles, they try to describe him, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And it's true. Paul says, I, I didn't come to you guys with eloquent words of wisdom, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and it's interesting because his bodily presence, though we may not know what he looked like, in the year, in the year 200 AD, there was a book that was written called the Acts of Paul in Thelica. The Acts of Paul in uh, Thecla, I'm sorry, and it, which dates back in 200 AD, and it's, it says this. It says this about Paul. It is so unflattering that it may well be true. It describes Paul as a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, with the nose somewhat hooked, full of grace. For sometimes he appeared like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. So here's this guy. Now picture this small, bow-legged, bald guy with the hook nose, you know, and hey, you need to repent. And, and he didn't have much of a speech. And, and that's what they're saying. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they were probably talking about his physical appearance, but mainly more his authority. You know, he doesn't have much of an authority. He's not much of an authority figure. Only when he writes things down, they're saying. And so they were accusing him. And, and, and he lacked the kind of charisma and this personal charm. Well, Paul didn't want to be charming. He wanted to be correct. Amen. He wanted to be connected to Christ. And he wanted you to be connected to Christ. Amen. He didn't want to be loved. You know, I mean, the, and, and the testimonies about Paul walking into a city and being drug out and beat up yeah. give testimony to the fact that yeah. it's not that he wanted to be liked. Paul felt this urgency to have people repent. Amen. You got to repent. And that's the whole call of the book of Corinthians. Amen. First and second. Amen. Repent. Amen. You guys are living like the world. You guys are destroying each other. You're destroying the church. And that was his call. That was his claim. That was his cry. And, and no doubt, I mean, you know, he had these 
failings and he was beat up quite a bit and he was kind of crooked in legs and and so he didn't look too good but that wasn't his intention at all false teachers intend by cutting uh criticisms and they portray themselves as strong decisive leaders and and paul is weak and wishy-washy you know he's not really uh set in stone he says what he says in, in letters but when he shows up he doesn't he's not like that and and it's it, it's interesting to know that that's kind of what uh, Jesus Christ is telling us, he says in, in uh, Matthew 20, he says, it shall not be so, when he's talking about the leadership, he's talking about those who want to be first, those who want to be in charge. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was the same kind of excuse, or that was, those are the same kind of words that they used up against Jesus. He hangs out with prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors. He, how can he be some sort of a holy man? You know, he's, he, he was born in a manger. Come on. He, he's a carpenter's son out of all people. And then shepherds, those guys that we, do, we know they, have, they lack all credibility, those guys want to give testimony that they saw a bright light? I don't know. And so there were all these questions about Jesus Christ. And you know what Paul says? I didn't come to get loved. I came to proclaim the word of God, the gospel, according to Jesus. Paul, you know, his speech was of no account. But what they meant to say is that he wasn't polished. He wasn't an orator like, uh, like Alexander uh, and um, I forget his name right now, Apollos. He wasn't, he wasn't a polished man like those two men. Apollos was, I mean, skilled and, and wise and, and God uses that. Oh, don't get me wrong. God will use that if you lay down at his feet. But don't count on that. Count on the word of God. Depend on God's inspired word. You speak God's inspired word, then everything has to submit itself to it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You quote a verse. And you quote a verse. And it compels the enemy of deception to flee. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not... Did not did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. Amen. That's all that we want to know. Amen. Let me share with you what Jesus Christ did on the cross for Amen. you. See, false apostles and those that are waging war against the church sometimes use their polished, oratory, slick, manipulative skills to sway and seduce with music and with charm and they have lights and smoke and celestial angels please don't get me wrong i some of those things that people use you have lights and those things they use them effectively but that's not how you win people over you win people over by using the word of god preach the word clearly powerfully and people's faith will not trust on the wisdom of men but on the power of god number five I need to, in order to be ready for the spiritual warfare, in order to be ready for battle, prepared for battle, I need to focus on the integrity of my walk. I need to focus on my integrity of my walk. Let, let, me, let me just share something with you. In, in, verse, in verse 11, first, 2 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. I walk my walk. The talk that I talk, I walk it, Paul says. What I'm telling you is what, who I am. I'm not trying to make up these lofty words. And, and you want to challenge me on that, it's fine. But you, you talk to anybody. You Corinthians, the church, the, the real, genuine, authentic church of Corinth, you know me. You are my recommendation letter. 
I don't need to send you a recommendation. You already know me. You've seen my life. You've seen my heart. I've been there. What these guys are telling you is not true. However, a lot of those people were being swayed. And Paul had to share with them, look, I focus on my, the integrity of my walk. Integrity is very important. Integrity is what protects you. Integrity is just not what people see. Integrity is what people don't see. Can you actually say the things that you say um, in church, what you said this last week? Would you actually be able to do the things that you did this last week within church? Is it only when people are watching that we are so grandiosious with our prayers and our life and everything else? Or is that what you do? Your integrity has to be intact. You know, folks, because I'll tell you one thing. Though you may look good on the outside and though you may do well on the outside, you're not fighting against flesh and blood. These demonic forces that are behind the scenes, oh, they see everything. They hear everything. They know everything. Well, I shouldn't say they know everything because only God knows everything. But they are able to see and they use those as arrows in their quiver. This is why Paul says you put up the shield of faith so you can extinguish the fiery darts that come from the enemy. Those fiery darts are the words that you have been using and you've repented from. But if you continue to use those words, that thought process, that language, those things, the enemy uses those against you every single time. That's why with the shield of faith, but I've been forgiven and I've repented and I'm moving forward because I got the helmet of salvation, the belt of righteousness, the breastplate of uh, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and my feet shot in the gospel of peace with the sword ready to extinguish and the shield ready to extinguish all these fiery darts. Prepared for battle. Preparing for battle, number six, inhabit a life of humility. The Bible has a lot to say about humility. Humility is not weakness. Humility is not being weak. This is what Paul says in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. There's no more Christian virtue, noble Christian virtue, than humility. The genuine conviction that one is utterly, completely unworthy of the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. To know that I am not worthy, that I do not deserve. I mean, just the fact that I received grace tells me I didn't deserve it. Because grace is undeserved. You don't deserve grace. You can't deserve to go to heaven. You can't deserve to be treated well. Then it's not grace. Just the word in itself, grace, just exemplifies the fact that I'm not worthy of it. And I have nothing good within me that God said, you know, I want to save that individual. It was all by the grace of God and his love. His love that was poured out into my life. And it is because of that I am forever grateful. If I receive nothing else from this point forward, I owe God my life just for that. 
In the Bible, it just paints a beautiful picture of, of what humility is. Here's some verses, and they're not in your outline, but you know, if you want to write these down, you can. Humble people, they recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Can you believe that? You're, because you're poor in spirit, you're humble. The Bible says you have your places in heaven. Humble people refuse to think more highly of themselves than they should. Romans 12, 3, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Humble people, f- before, humble people fall before their, their great and glorious God in lowliness and submission. Isaiah said when he saw the Lord that filled the temple, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm done. He says, I have no standing. Peter said the same thing. When he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So humility exposes that and knows that and grabs it and understands that I don't deserve anything from God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Um, Humble people truly worship God. In Psalms 95, oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. The picture of submission, the picture of surrender, the picture of just understanding I am a slave on the ground, on my face. Father, I come before you. And here's the picture of a lot of other people. They say, no, God, you come before me and you tell me what it is that I want to know. You give me, you do for me, and maybe I might receive you. And maybe I might accept what you're trying to give me. I know you're knocking on my door, but you know what, God? You haven't proven yourself yet to me. Prove it is the concept that people have in today's culture. Humble people are convinced that no task is beneath them. In John chapter 13, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now imagine that. My Lord, my Savior, my King, wash these men's feet did what was for a slave to do. He says in in verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. We are to serve one another, taking on the task of a servant. And it doesn't matter what that task is, we are to do so. Humble people recognize that they are not yet what they should be. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now, let me pause there for a moment. This is one of those verses that people use. You see, I'm I'm still a work in progress. I'm not there. I'm never going to get there. Yeah, but see, now look at this. One thing Paul does. He forgets what's behind. He doesn't keep going back there. Oh, yeah, I messed up again. He doesn't keep pulling it forward. Oh, yeah, from behind. He forgets what's behind. He puts it, what lies behind it, and straining forward. 
to what lies ahead. That's my focus. Not back here. Oh, I messed up. I'm a work in progress. You know, I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect. Those are the resources that people use, the language that people use. And they use this verse to say that, see, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. But are you leaving that stuff behind? Are you repented? Have you left it? And he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Humble people are unwilling to boast, brag, or even promote themselves. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And this is why these people in Corinth that were causing the struggle, they, they, they would capitalize on Paul's weaknesses. They would capitalize on, on his appearance, his speech. Yeah, this guy's not really, I mean, Apollos, yes, maybe. But Paul, come on. You know, all he knows how to do is write hefty tweets and, and texts. That's all he knows how to do. He is just not that kind of a person. In fact, humble people are somewhat embarrassed by the commendation. Proverbs 27 says, let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Humble people do not hide their sins and shortcomings, or view themselves as superior to others. Paul tells Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost sinner. He says, I'm number one. I'm number one on God's list. Beloved, you just don't understand on what I've done. And many of you know my testimony, Paul says. You know that I chased after those Christians, and I, I had them killed and imprisoned and fed the lions. You, you know, and I, 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 I was the, you know, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and he has saved me. Amen. Humble people are willing to serve. The greatest Amen. among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humble people are content to submit all their plans to the Lord's will. In, in uh, Proverbs 37 and Proverbs 16, but Paul summed up the attitude of humble per- a person when he wrote, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We can be so tied up and meticulous in God's Word and understand it and and read it and and all its nuances from the Greek and, and how it's all put together. And we can do that. But, you know, if we stick just, I mean, if we stick and, and follow the letter and, and try to do a, a self-righteous type of legalistic church, that's not going to work. That has to be lived out in your life. Yeah. This is why I am going. There are some people that say that Reformed theology is very legalistic. It's very legalistic. And, and I can see why it, it comes that way, because pride seems to affect everybody. You know, especially when you think you're right, you know you're right. That pride just just seeps right in there. And so what, what we're trying to do is get this Reformed theology for practical living. How do I live this out? Because it's one thing to know it, but it's a whole different thing to do it. And we want to do both. And nothing more clearly marks the man of God than the attitude and humility of that of Jesus Christ. No one except for Jesus himself had more profound impact on the church than Paul. But, but you know, Paul, uh, he, what he does is he describes himself as a clay pot. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in clay pots to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul says, uh, what a wretched man I am. Who yeah. will deliver me from this body? Yeah. The, the very, he said he was the very least one to me, though I am the very least of all saints. This grace was given to me. And on and on. Paul just says, you know, I'm not... I know I'm not. So you're pointing out that I look and, and I sound and I might even smell funny. And I walk bow legged and I got a unibrow. Okay, you may be pointing, but you, I, I already know that's, 
That's irrelevant. I know my heart. Paul says, I am the worst. I am the least. I'm the number. If I'm number one anything, I'm the number one sinner. Paul says, and his humility, it just imbued. And for people to say that he wasn't humble, and for people to say that he wasn't articulate, Paul moved the church. More than, more than anyone else except for Jesus Christ, Paul moved the church. And he continues to. Humility contrasted with the blatant pride of these people that were talking. In, if you want spiritual arsenal for your, your war and your battle, use humility. Keep that one as close to you as possible. When your pride gets affected, when, you're, when, you're, uh, when you get angry because of something somebody said or done, the one arsenal, the weapon that you're going to use most is going to be humility. Just recognize it. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I am dirt. This is what I was told. It's like, you're dirt. I said, I know I am. You're no good. I know I'm no good. I know I'm worthless. I know those things, you know. But what am I going to do? You know, I, you want me to fight back? What do you want me to do? I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to get hurt. <laughs> I'm too old to fight. I'm not going to fight anybody. <laughs> Somebody wanted to fight me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sitting down. Amen. Unfortunately, many people still did not get the point. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to talk about this next week, and it's in your outlines. I, I thought I was going to talk about it today, but you know, and we'll close it out next week. We're going to have a a, a, a service with um, Louis and his wife. They're going to share with us some interesting things about Southeast Asia. I pray that you can make it. Bring some people with you. Let's show some love to our brother. Amen. 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 Uh, but. Some do's and don'ts. Don't compare with others. Paul says in, in verse 12, do minister within your own limits. In other words, don't try to do more than you can do. Just Amen. understand what, what your limits are. Don't take credit for other people's work. Amen. You know, hey, they did it. And, and give, do seek only God's glory and Amen. don't commend yourself. Don't seek the glory of everybody else. Amen. Don't try to get everybody else's approval. Amen. No, don't try to make people happy. Here's the problem. When you make group A happy, what's, what happens is, you know, they get happy. Group B over here gets mad. You know, they're trying to make them happy. They get mad. Then all of a sudden, Group C comes up. What about us? <laughs> and there you are, you know, running around in circles trying to make everybody happy. So you know, it's a lot easier and it's a lot simpler when you do everything for the audience of one. You do everything for the glory of God. Amen. When you do everything for the glory of God, Amen. everything else just falls in its place. Amen. And that is the dividing factor for some people. And they want to call you divisive. Well, you know, I, I trust in God. Beloved, there is a spiritual battle going on out there. And there is a lot of anger. There is a lot of hatred. There is a lot of words that are being used. Use the word of God. And understand that he has an intended purpose through all of this. Everything that is happening, God has an intended purpose. He has even said that there will be lawlessness. Before it gets better, beloved, it's going to get messy. Before he returns, oh yeah, it's going to be a mess. Yes, 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 yes. And so be careful, Man. be wise. Man. There is a man of peace coming. Man. There is a man of peace, the Bible says, is the first horseman of the apocalypse during the tribulation. And this man of peace is going to be proclaiming peace. He comes on a white horse and he has a bow in his hand. And the bow is not the sword of attacking. And the bow, without any arrows, if you would read, 
read Revelation 6. It's, it's the bow of peace. It's, it's a symbol of, of strength and triumph. And he's wearing a crown. Now, the crown that is, and this is, this is where it's important to know a little bit of Greek. And if you just studied it a little bit more, you'll understand that that crown that he has on his head is called a, a stephanos, as opposed to the crown that the king would use as a diadem. And the stephanos was more of a trophy was more of a, a prize, uh, you know, something that he would receive for giving peace to the planet. It's, it, it was a reef that they would give to the Olympics, the people that played in the Olympics back in, in the Greek days. And back then, and they would give them a trophy. And it was a very important trophy. It had a lot of significance. But it wasn't the diadem crown. The first horseman of the apocalypse is not Jesus Christ. As some people say, well, he's coming in with the crown. And he's coming in on a white horse. No, that's... That white horse comes in in chapter 19. But this person, this man of peace, this, that he's going to calm the wars, is a picture and a, a, a very blatant picture of what a lot of people are going to follow. And this turmoil that's happening, somebody's going to rise up out of this turmoil and people are going to follow him. He says, look, I've created peace. I'm making peace all over the world. With Israel, with the rest of the world, peace is, is everywhere. And, and, and I, you know, I, I've been given these prizes because I'm a man of peace. I don't like war. I don't want war. And we're not going to have wars. And wars are going to be done with. And yeah, that's the man we want. This is what we want to do. And beloved, that is the beginning of the end. Amen. And this turmoil has an intended purpose. Amen. It's already described right here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I just don't know when that's going to happen. Amen. I just know it is. Yeah. And so... You want to fight this spiritual battle, beloved, you need to be ready. Yeah. Prepare for it. Let me ask you to stand. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you, brother. God bless you, too. God bless you. Is it warm in here or is it just me? Ah. Uh, oh, we're not done yet. <clears throat> Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, we do want to thank you once again for your word. Paul had to deal with people just like we had to deal with people. Paul had to deal with attitudes and ideologies and thoughts and all kinds of sin. And, and Father, we're doing the same thing right now. We're coming up against people that disagree with us. And it's almost, uh, we're almost fearful of having to share what we know. And, and it, almost, it frightens us, Father, to, to be as confident and as forthright to proclaim and we're afraid of what might happen on what might be taken away or, or damaged or even hurt myself. Yes, Lord. And Father, these are the same things that were happening in Paul's day. Yes, Lord. But here's this short little bald man was proud to say that he knew yes. the one and only yes. living Savior, yes. Jesus Christ. Yes. So Father, help us to have the same attitude and prepare ourselves Please, for battle in the things to come. So we thank you, Lord, for, for giving us this direction today. Help us to be humble. Humility Amen. is the number one arsenal, the weapon that we will need within Amen. our lives. When our anger flares up, help us to be humble. Yeah. Help us to remember Paul and Jesus Christ. Yeah. When we feel that we've been disrespected, help us to remember yeah. Jesus Christ. When we feel that things aren't going the way that we want them to go, help us yeah. to remember our humility. And what you've called us to be. Humility is not a weakness. It's really more strength than anything else. The greatest virtue. So, Father, once again, we thank you for just being with us today and meeting with us and instructing us through your word. 
Father, take this time that we've committed to you, multiply it within our life this week as we go over and refresh this word within our mind. So thank you once again, Father, as you dismiss us from this place, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. All right, we are dismissed. Praise God. Thank you.